Welcome to the very first episode of the Man Strong podcast. I am pleased to be in the room with a friend of mine that I've known for many years, but not actually in this capacity. We've not opened up these conversations before, but I'm very looking forward to what he has to say. It's Stephen Basdeo. How are you doing, Stephen? Very well, thank you, Hugh. Yes, I'm great, thank you. Stephen, I wonder if you could just enlighten everyone listening, and maybe even myself, maybe I'll find something out that I didn't know. Give us a little bit of information about you, what you do. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, obviously, I'm Stephen. Um, I'm a university lecturer um, and a historian. Uh, my research, uh, what I kind of focus on so far is, um, well, you'll probably know yourself, but um, essentially, I've always focused on the history of heroes. What makes a hero? Now, mm. I have in the past studied some <laughs> very famous criminals as heroes, and kind of in addition to that, obviously, um, looking at other figures from the medieval period, like what Tyler, kind of re rebel leaders, but recently as well, kind of turning my attention to the history of the British Empire and so-called imperial heroes, uh, probably best put a quote unquote um, around that word hero there. And I've recently, um, certainly in 2020, um, also participated in Leeds City Council's Statues and Monuments Review, um, which they undertook um, after there were some, um, some protests around various statues in Leeds. So um, a lot of my research I've done so far really kind of forces me to consider this issue of manliness um mm. you know what what made these part of what made these heroes heroes um in their respective times was the fact that uh they were considered to be manly men so to speak so yeah um it's really why i was quite interested um in coming on here um the man strong podcast it seemed uh, as good a venue as any uh to talk about these things Absolutely. I mean, I think the first thing that I remember you, the first time I, I realised that you had kind of delved into this and um, published this was around Robin Hood. Yeah. Um, and I get, you know, when you when you when you think about characters like that, and and actually in more recent times, um, you know, I love my comic books, and a lot of the heroes originally were men, and mm. now they're not now, and we get more diverse and we get more ethnic diversity, etc. But there is that. There is that idea of a hero being strong in some way or mm. having something that's better or that faster or cleverer, you know, than than other people. And that is kind of part of the way, um, I suppose, part of why they are seen as heroes. Um, and that's why, like you say, you know, today's kind of topic that I'd love us to delve into is where does manliness come from? And is that an expectation that's always been around? Has it been created? You know, is it something natural within us or is it, is it actually societal? You know, where does it come from? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, first of all, I, I should say that I'm, I'm going to talk primarily about the Victorian era. So um, that period, 1837 till 1901, because that's what I've been focusing on a, a lot recently. But in some ways any consideration of manliness or masculinity, as we should now say, um, any consideration of that um, is, is really perfect if you're looking at Victorians as well, because the Victorian era, they were obsessed with what it meant to be a man. Um, and th th there's quite a few reasons for that, um, you know, and so one of the kind of well, there's kind of two key questions I, I kind of set myself today. You know, um, how did the Victorians in their popular culture and in society at large imagine manliness? And how, how was it then imposed onto men? And then also to kind of delve into questions of, well, why did certain ideals of manliness emerge at this point? Um, now, just for the benefit of your readers, um, I'll preface it before I launch into Victorians. I'll just say that every preceding era before the 1800s has had its version of masculinity or manliness, this ideal form, which there's many, many books that, you know, they could access um, on that. But um, yeah, so, I mean, 
please, as, as I go on, I, I would just ask uh, yourself and readers to um, don't assume that these things were new by the 1800s, these kind of questions. They, they'd always been considered, basically. Um, but, I mean, really, I, I suppose, you know, we've just been talking about heroes and, um, you know, uh, usually, especially in popular culture nowadays, the, the hero is someone um, who is, you know, this usually quite strong, <laughs> hence Man's Strong <laughs> Podcast. Um, but in some ways, the very early Victorian period books that trend a little bit, um, because what we see in the early Victorian era, so Victoria comes to the throne on, uh, in 1837. Now, Britain, um, since the 1750s, has, is experiencing the Industrial Revolution and an agricultural revolution as well. So, you know, um, we, we see the rise of the railways, the, the telegraph, um, you know, farming methods um, become modern, etc. So Britain is progressing, and certainly by the 1830s, into a modern developed country. Um, and then Victoria comes onto the throne. Now, what we have at the same time is the, the rise of the middle classes as well. So, um, yes, there are factory owners um, who don't necessarily get their hands as dirty as a factory owner might have done hundred years previous to Victoria. Um, also the rise of the professions as well. So the lawyers, the doctors, the medical men, um, the clerks in the, uh, in the mercantile firms and that. And finally, the, the middle classes, they're achieving political supremacy as well. So by 1832, the right to vote has been extended to all middle class men. So we've really got a situation in which the middle classes, they're displacing the old upper classes, the aristocracy, and they're also, they're trying to impose their vision, their kind of own ways of life mm. as much as possible onto the working class as well. But we have an, we have an issue here uh, when it comes to manliness because the middle classes, they, they're no longer getting their hand, you know, in a sense, you know, especially the early 19th century is this um, period when the whole idea of a kind of white collar job emerges. And so they need to work out this new vision of masculinity. It is no longer like the aristocracy would have done in centuries previously, you know, um, that they would no longer uh, be hunting because most of the middle classes lived, lived in the town. So they came with this ideal of domesticity. Um, okay. So I'm just going to um, share a screen now. Um, Perfect. That's really interesting, isn't it? Just before I go into that, how hmm. actual environment and then social status and the right to vote then sways actually those attributes that we thought was manly. Yeah. Now, actually, um, there's more. There's more people that don't fit within that because they're in towns, yeah. Oh, certainly. I mean, yeah, you, you've you've got it in one there. Um, they they need to they need new vision of what what it means to be a man. Something that is going to accommodate uh, the new middle class way of life, uh, and the answer to this is domesticity. Now, even the royal family, even they curate this domestic image. Um, so I've got a photograph here. Um, so the royal family back in the 1850s, um, just like today, they, they would release official photographs and portraits. Now, if I hadn't told you that this was Victoria and Albert in this photograph, um, you probably might not know because here we have a very plain Prince Consort, uh, Prince Albert and his wife, Queen Victoria. Um, they are, they look like any Victorian couple. Um, they could pass for any Victorian couple. They're not showy, um, they're, they're quite modest in a way. And, and yet, you know, this, um, this woman here and uh, her prince consort, they are the rulers of 
the largest empire um, in the history of the world. And you would not know that from uh, this photograph alone. No. And there's certainly others, and I just want to focus on Prince Albert especially, because he looks at what the middle class are doing. And he knows that the middle classes are the dominant class, um, certainly by the 1840s and 50s. And so he himself, he curates this image of himself as a middle class uh, or upper middle class, at least, mm. uh, man. So here he is, you know, there's no special regalia here um, in this particular photograph. It, it is a suit, a very smart suit, nonetheless, but it's a suit, jacket, waistcoat, um, and... He is holding some documents in this particular um, picture here, but, um, you know, he could easily be um, a accountant, <laughs> a clerk. Um, yeah. Um, so we they're, they're really trying to emulate the middle classes here. But what I want to talk about now, and I'm just going to stop sharing the screen um, for a moment. And I'll uh, go back to us two. But I just want to talk about a bit more about what domesticity actually was, because I've mentioned the term so far. So put very simply, and if there's anything that you don't understand, please ask me to repeat myself. <laughs> um, sometimes what is clear to me, because I've studied it for quite a while, isn't clear to others. But it was this idea that to be a true man, you focused your attention on building a happy family life at home. So I'm just going to quote um, Samuel Smiles. Um, this book here, Self Help, the original book which kickstarted an entire industry. And he said in this book, which was published in the 1850s, a real man, a man's real character is most surely displayed in the home. Which is quite interesting because that's maybe is quite different to today, but it involved um, basically building an environment in the home where your wife um, could essentially be um, protected in the domestic sphere um, and your children as well. So it was about, um, well, it's essentially about turning a house into a home. And so, this is one of the this is the period as well in which um, the living space, the home, becomes firmly separated from the place of work. If you went back a century previous to the Victorians, um, most people um, they it, well they had a phrase it was called living above shop. Um, so they would have their business on the ground floor yeah. and then the family would live upstairs and most of the business in some way was carried on from the home itself. Um, you had to love your wife as well. Um, so, you know, marriages were supposed to be based on love, um, which is quite interesting from some of the stereotypes I think we have in the modern day of the Victorian era as well. Um, yeah. yeah, because, um, you know, we often assume that back in the 1800s, um, you know, you had a woman would have to marry primarily for social advancement or mm. um, for money, which, of course, that did happen. But, you know, um, we're talking about ideals here, so to speak. And so the ideal was that you married for love. You had, um, you had uh, children and, you know, you devoted all your time and attention into the um, domestic sphere. And um, so the domestic sphere was supposed to be a man's haven away from the world of work. Um, so it's, it's where he could fully enjoy himself, so to speak. And of course, the true man, to be a, a true man, um, he had to be able to provide for his wife and family. His wife ideally should not work. This was a way of separating the true manly middle-class man from the working classes whose wives often had to take jobs from okay. necessity. So um, in, that's in short what domesticity was, but there were other facets um, along with this as well. 
Because that's almost uh, that's almost that idea of the breadwinner. Pretty much, yeah, yeah, the ideal of the breadwinner. Um, it, but there's, um, I mean, there, there was a term used once or twice, and um, I think it's gained a lot of currency now, but it was the idea of the separate spheres. So there was the domestic sphere, where the wife and children were, and then there was the um, public sphere. And the public sphere is where a man would go out, earn a living, um, but then be able to enjoy the domestic sphere as well. Women ideally should only appear in the public sphere um, by the side of their man, uh, so to speak. Wow, okay. Yeah, it's um, it, quite an interesting theory, but I think the, the point about saying it's an ideal is that when I say this is a middle-class ideal, it is the one that's dominant in popular culture at the time. Because I mentioned the rise of the professions, mm. but it's also the sons of these people in the professions who essentially control the media. And I don't mean that in a conspiratorial sense, <laughs> but, you know, it, just, it, it was just the plain fact that, you know, um, uh, if your father was rich enough to be able to send you through the public school system and into university, mm. you probably, um, maybe a bit like nowadays, um, you know, you probably got a job as a writer or, or you know, in, in a firm somewhere or, you know, certainly, um, you, you know, you were active in the media at some point. And so um, you this ideology is kind of disseminated down into popular culture, uh, so to speak. Yeah, that's really interesting because then I suppose that the overruling or the, I suppose the overarching thing I'm hearing there is it's the idea that we still have today, I suppose, of the richer, the higher class, the more successful, mm -hmm. then the advantages of being a child of that person and then the, the opportunities that you have in front of you being greater than somebody of back then, you know, working class. Oh, definitely. I mean, um, well, I mean, you know, how many, um, how many, when, what, you know, you, we think of all our, you know, famous British actors. Um, most of them went to um, fee paying schools, uh, e even nowadays, you know, <laughs> um, and it's, uh, you know, and, it does make make you wonder sometimes, you know, um, have we really moved on since, uh, you know, the 1800s? We like to think we are better, um, you know, that society is better as a whole. But when it comes to class, um, you know, and the way your social class determines your life route or trajectory, um, I, I, you know, um, the, the pessimist in me um, probably thinks, you know, uh, we don't, we, we haven't changed that much, uh, maybe. Um, no, I mean, there's, there are always those, there always seem to be those barriers, don't there? So my my brother, you know, he's, he's going to a very prestigious college. And the only reason he has done that and has been able to do that is because my mum has funded that. And it's not, you know, in whatever mm. class system we're in now, and I don't even, I don't even, think I'm part of a class system I don't I don't identify as as anything like that but we you know as a family certainly don't have the money to spend that without thought like you would think of you know very successful very very rich people um but yes absolutely as a barrier to to him getting in or anyone that has less money well it is money it yeah. is that entrance fee it is you know and and back you know back then I suppose it might have been really kind of strict and more firm class-based rules and you know we've seen that throughout history um but yeah so you you're talking about you know Hugh Grant um Colin Firth people like that you know that have been to and I don't know this for a fact so please don't quote me but I can only imagine gone to you know um a private school or a boarding school or something like that and it does you know it does enable them to be able to pay maybe it's paying the fees to be able to get into these places to be able to get in the limelight Certainly. And I mean, when it comes to kind of the writing of novels, um, you know, or being a writer, and I actually think that is one area where certainly people in the 19th century maybe had the edge 
over us in the modern day, actually, because, um, you know, if you just had a flair for writing, a talent, mm. it was quite easy to break into the world of novel writing. The newspaper and the kind of media establishment, that was a bit harder to get into, probably just like today. But ultimately, if you wrote a manuscript and, um, you know, uh, you sent it off to a publisher, you could very well um, find yourself published. So, I mean, I'm just thinking here of the, um, the very poor novelist Thomas Miller, um, who was kind of active around the 1840s, you know, um, he he was a basket weaver. Um, but right. he published, yeah, and um, he is certainly very working class, um, lived most, most of his early life in poverty, but um, dreamed up a few very good stories and, um, uh, yeah, he, um, he, he was quite good after that. I think the only su similar success story I can think of comparably nowadays is perhaps J.K. Rowling. Um, mm. It's, um, but yeah, it's, I mean, but just on kind of literature and that, another marker of kind of manliness is that um, you, you were supposed to be acquainted with the great works of English literature. Um, you know, there, there was no two ways about that. If you, if you didn't know Shakespeare, um, you would be considered perhaps quite uncouth and less of a man, uh, to the Victorians at least. Um, I mean, it's not, it's certainly not like that nowadays, but, you know, um, you have to remember the, the Victorians, they are, they are in the process of building an empire. They want this, um, they self-consciously want this empire to be considered a civilization, uh, you know, on a par with Greece and Rome of the past. So, you know, their cultural achievements, as much as their technological achievements, being glorified. And so they require of all men to be, to, to know their nation's literary heritage and uh, like that. So it's, um above all, you have to be cultured and overarching kind of this idea of domesticity and manliness is this idea of independence. Mm. Um, so, I mean, we maybe have a, something similar nowadays, but it meant that um, certainly by the age of 30, and obviously it goes without saying that this is a very heterosexual um view of manliness that the Victorians had um, so I don't know where I would fit into it myself but um, you were supposed to um, be married with your own household by the age of at least 30 um, and your household was supposed to be independent from patronage so you could no longer rely on your father um, or any other uncle or benefactor um, for your livelihood you had to be independent and you could only gain independence by working hard um so hard work um kind of ties in to this whole idea of what was called the protestant work ethic um where hard work will produce good rewards so you know this is a christian society um that the victorians mm -hmm. are living in um and hard work was your security against becoming dependent on charity or the workhouse which was the early form of welfare that the Victorians had um so yeah um ultimately these requirements did exclude quite a lot of the working classes um from you know being able to be recognized as manly as such um sorry no, I was I was just uh, just something on on the tip of my tongue there, and it's the idea of we've gone from the hunter gatherer, mm -hmm. we've moved on. Civilization is changing, this empire is building, and then society is almost pinning its hopes on the strength comes from the ability to be able to then grow and maintain that empire. So it's almost like looking at that as a bigger thing and saying you are manly if you play your part. You are cultured. You can, you know, you can, you're, you're well read. You can, you know, you can carry on all these stories and all this information. Create a family, procreate, and then 
and you know and then pass that down to your you know your sons and daughters certainly and to be honest this really brings me on to my next point because the period i've been talking about so far is essentially 1830 to about 1860. now this ideal of domesticity uh, yes, the empire does figure in it in a roundabout way, you know, that they do want to be a civilization. Mm. But essentially, the first half of the century, uh, of the 19th century, is an era when Britain is the economic and military superpower. It has, it won the Battle of Waterloo with Prussian help, of course. Um, so it's beaten France, it's beaten Napoleon. Um, it exercises its sway over um, even territories which are not formally a part of its empire. This ideal, this rather peaceful ideal of domesticity is only possible in an era of peace, yeah. when there's no major wars going on. And Britain, in a way, is self-confident. It, um, you know, I mean, you see images of statesmen at the time, and it is that smug look of superiority that most of the prime ministers, etc., have on their faces. Yeah. But by the 1860s, this empire is under threat. Um, so what happens, well, certainly in 1857, you have a major event uh, like the Indian Mutiny or the Indian Rebellion. So Britain obviously um, controls most of India at the time. Um, it doesn't actually... Um, the British state doesn't control India. Rather, one of Britain's trading companies, the East India Company, controls India. Right. Um, and so Indians rebel against the rule of the East India Company. And it takes about a year and a half for the East India Company, and with the help of the British Army, to reassert control. Then you've got also the rise of uh, the Second French Empire under Napoleon III. Um, in the 1850s. And also then rivalry with a unified Germany from 1870 and a, a United States um, from the 1870s as well, because before the 1870s, the United States is a bit of a backwater and um, not that powerful, to be honest. And also other European powers are staking their claim, um, certainly by the 1880s, to the continent of Africa, and they're imposing direct rule over most of the colony, uh, sorry, over most territories in Africa. Yeah. And Britain needs a piece of that cake too. So suddenly we go from this domestic ideal uh, where the man should be at home to a much more militaristic and imperialistic vision of masculinity, which emerges around this 1860 period. And this is where we get an increasing emphasis on physical fitness. Okay. So, I mean, before in the, the era of domesticity, mm. domesticity, it was enough to just not be fat because if you were fat, that indicated that you were overindulgent and perhaps immoral. But by the 1860s, when Britain needs ever more men to rule this empire and go out into the four corners of the globe and, assert British supremacy we need fit men <laughs> to 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 do that and men who were strong enough to kind of um survive in very inhospitable climates um you know sort of from soaring heats in Africa to the kind of cold temperatures of the South Af Atlantic so initially um an ideology emerges out of the fee-paying public schools, which, were, which is where the officer class of the army is going to come from. And the schools promote fee, three things, uh, well, four things, actually. Uh, muscular Christianity and athleticism. Muscular Christianity? <laughs> muscular Christianity. Yeah, um, so, uh, in fact, I'll, I'll go into um, this before um, going further. So, Muscular Christianity and athleticism. This is the idea that to be a true Christian and to be a true servant of the empire, you had to be physically fit, but also willing to serve God wherever the need was in the empire. Almost um, like God's, God's army. Pretty much, yeah. And, you know, I mean, uh, 
missionary work was it, it went hand in hand with the, the business of empire um okay. so to speak but I mean, there's a quote from Thomas Arnold, um, who was the headmaster of rugby school um, in the mid 19th century, and who did a lot to promote this kind of athleticism ethos. Mm -hmm. And he said of the type of boys he wanted to create in that school, he said, what I want is a man who is a Christian and a gentleman, an active man. And you can see just in that little quote, mm. those three things which are summed up there. So they know their Bible, they are strong. Um, and so eventually this ideology, again, it filters down into popular culture at the time. So um, the heroes of popular culture, and this is where as someone who likes superheroes, you might start to see a few more similarities because the heroes of popular novels at the time, um, you know, they're always strong and fit. They're ready to go out there on an adventure, uh, so to speak. So it's like, you know, just one novel I read, it's called With Clive in India. Um, it's about um, a young British boy um, from the country who goes out to India and serves under Robert Clive, who was one of the heroes of the empire back in the 18th century. Um, but it's full of descriptions like young Charlie had, quote, muscles of steel, um, you know, and, uh, you know, so this is really, um, yeah, and... This is really being pushed on people. We might also say that um, this is also the era when perhaps um, the fat shaming of younger boys begins to emerge as well. Um, so boys magazines like uh, the Boys Own Annual or Young England, these really popular one penny magazines, mm. which I think of the forerunners of comics because they were heavily illustrated in some respect. Um, but they, they, they shame, you know, the typical fat boy in the playground, so to speak. Yeah. So the new, the new Victorian man, certainly from the 1860s onwards, um, which is kind of when Prince Albert died, actually. So, you know, it, he's no longer there to curate that image of himself. Um, but from the 1860s onwards, um, you know, very strong, uh, very fit. And of course, this is the area when the first bodybuilders begin to emerge as well. So like Eugene, Eugene Sandow, um, you know, um, who, you know, parades his, uh, the, the uh, you know, sculpted uh, body on stage, so to speak. It's, yeah, I um, mean, that's, and, that, and that's actually the person which is the, I think it's one of the trophies awarded in the Mr. Olympia. Oh, really? Okay. The Sandow trophy. So that was really interesting that that, that, that came up and it's, you know, what's fascinating for me is, is seeing that it's almost this idea that manliness comes from where you are and what it needs as a as a nation or as an empire, as we were talking about there. Um, and it really it really opens your mind as to, I mean, you mentioned about the United States at that point, not really a thing. So there'll be different stories, I'm sure, from history from, you know, from there, but whether it's documented in the same way. But what I'm thinking now is, so we're not... So the world is so different now. We're not in a in a point of active war. We've been in war, but it doesn't necessarily affect us. We're not getting invaded. We're not sending as many people out to war. War looks very, very different nowadays, isn't it? So what would the rules back then dictate that manliness should technically be now? You know, if we were to follow those same them same rules, what do you think it would look like now? Well. I think, first of all, Victorians would probably chastise us for losing the empire. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, they would say that's because we've had a lack of manliness and that um, certainly the generation after 1914 were less attentive um, to these questions um, of manliness, uh, so to speak. They would also say that there's been a complete lack of patriotism, which is one of the things I was going to come on to because it was also a aspect, another aspect of that public school ethos, which defined manliness as well. But in addition to muscular Christianity and athleticism was service to the nation and empire. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, men like General Gordon, um, the hero, uh, quote unquote, of Khartoum, and who was also died there. He was really 
deified in popular culture. Um, in fact, if you go to Leeds Art Gallery, obviously very near to us, you can see the famous painting by George W. Joy um, titled Gordon's Last Stand. And you see this, um, in fact, let me share my screen because I'm sure I have that. Um, oh, if you could just um, allow me yes. to. That's fine, we can do that. Go for it. So, um, ah, here we are. So, this is also in Leeds Art Gallery, this um, particular painting as well, General Gordon's Last Stand, but it was obviously painted after his death. Um, the person who painted it was not at Khartoum when Gordon died, um, so this is completely imagined, so to speak, but you can see how here is General Gordon um, at the top uh, wearing a red, um, I forgot the name of those hats, affairs, oh. <laughs> affairs, yeah, um, and he is ready to defend to um, his dying moments of the city of Khartoum against um, oh, um, what is really a horde there of um, religious fanatics, um, the, the Mahdi and his followers. So, um, you know, men like him, it's not only in paintings that people like him are idealised, but also in popular novels. So he, men like Gordon die, um, and soon they become the heroes of adventure stories as well. Um, and they're held up as, um, you know, the men who gave, the greatest sacrifice in the service of the empire. Um, and then related to that, at the very end, is also the ideal of chivalry and fair play. And so we have muscular Christianity and athleticism, yeah. patriotism and service to the empire and nation. And then the final aspect was chivalry and fair play. So the new British man from the... 1860s, 1870s, he was required to be almost like a modern version of the medieval knight. And I think, yeah, Robert, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, um, you know, um, a medieval knight, but instead of a sword and on a horse, uh, you have a rifle and a Gatling gun, I, I suppose. Um, <laughs> so, um, but I think Robert Pardon Powell in 1907, the, who also founded the Scout Movement mm -hmm. and was very, yeah, um, of course, you've done some work with the Scouts as well. But, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, Baden Powell, the founder, um, you know, one of the reasons he founds the Scouts is to tie into this um, whole idea that, you know, we need to build this, you know, new British man, starting with the kids, um, you know, and um, so... He actually says in his book, Scouting for Boys, which is published in 1908, he says that um, boys and men should strive at all times to, quote, win honour and a name for modesty, defend the poor and weak, and perform humble, perform humble work with modesty and grace, and finally, maintain the honour of your country with your life. And so, you know, um, this is everything he oh. wants. The British, um, the British boy, which his own scouting movement is going to help achieve mm -hmm. um, to become, so to speak. Um, and it's a bit like, you know, if you take one of the lines of um, uh, the, the song Rule Britannia, um, you know, really popular imperialist patriotic song, um, you know, manly hearts to guard the fair is one of the lines. It's, um, you know, this whole idea that British men, they should defend the nation and empire, but also protect the weak and vulnerable. Wow, I mean, the way that this changes as, as we go through, it's, if you add them all together, it's almost that superhero. Superheroes, are some, of the, some of the greatest love superheroes are these people embodied. They are protectors, they are providers, they love, they care. And the, Captain America would be a perfect example of this. Somebody that has morals, somebody that has, you know, will follow, will follow orders. And it's, you know, when we look today, one of the, one of the reasons why I wanted to, to start this podcast and look into this is because 
I think society will want manliness to be one thing. And I think because of the way things are now and the way that we're educated and we can self-educate and, and things aren't quite perhaps as ruled as they once were. And we're not, you know, we're not as, I suppose, stuck in doing what other people want us to do so we can kind of explore that identity ourselves. You know, after all these changes, mm. when I said we're now in a world that isn't an active war, we're not trying to build an empire. We're not doing this. So what is our role in becoming manliness or embodying manliness and being manly and it can be different for everyone but that's also why it's so confusing because when we look back depending on where we look you've got these different these different embodiments you know some people will think right definition of manly is a greek god yeah. or, <clears throat> you know again which is embodied in a lot of these comic books so you got thor hercules you know um and then you've got you know sometimes you've got the idea that that actually a manly man is down the pub. And, you, and there's other things that go from that. Like a manly man doesn't talk about his feelings. A manly man just gets on with it. Well, it's like, and it I mean... Back to wartime, doesn't it? Just kind of pick yourself up and carry on. Well, that's one of the things. I mean, you know, I, I mentioned uh, Shakespeare just now. I mean, how many manly men these days have had a conversation about Shakespeare with you? Yeah. Other than to say they hated it. Um, you know, it's, um, it's uh, you know... So, so it's just one of those things. It's it's ever changing, really. Mm. Um, I I would say, I mean, especially from this late Victorian period, there is a bit of a darker side to this idea of manliness. Okay. Because yes, we have we have the British, the British man, um, who serves the empire, um, and you know, um, imposes Britain's will over the kind of less developed areas of the earth. And eventually this does re this does this does acquire a very racial uh, racist dimension to it because l l let's try and put our minds in uh, a Victorian's mind. So here we, here we are. Okay, uh, we are the world's greatest empire. Um, we are facing a few threats from up and coming nations, etc. But to the Victorians, it makes sense that actually. British people and specifically English people or what they would have said people of Anglo-Saxon heritage or stock um it seemed as if British people had a divine right to rule over the kind of um I mean okay we, we can be blunt over the blacks and Asians uh, Asian people of the empire um and so eventually so yes you have stereotypes of what the British man should be but you soon get opposite stereotypes and negative stereotypes of what um, black people and Asian people um, are like and their characteristics so the Anglo-Saxon man so the Victorians thought was very strong and masculine um, mm. the Asian man was said to be weak and effeminate and that's certainly an a stereotype if you read many novels from the late Victorian period that mm. will come through qu quite a lot. Um, British men are supposed to be honourable and play by the rules. They're, they're devoted to this idea of fair play. Asian men were said by the Victorians um, to be devious and uh, not to be trusted entirely. Mm. So we, we get the Victor late Victorian ideal, and then we have people negatively stereotyped as a consequence of that. So, you know, and I think this is one of those things which, you know, we could probably consider in a bit more depth, even for today, you know, society and culture especially will glorify a certain type of manliness or masculinity. But it must always have a negative, if that's the case. Um, you know, it must always be defined against something that it is not. Um, I mean, it's it's something to ponder, and you know, um, I think many people, you know, if they if they do think about that question themselves, um, but they could probably give you know several answers. First of all, as to what 
society thinks a man should be today, mm-hmm. but also what society thinks is not a man, um, so to speak. It's um, so it's very. Um, I mean, you know, I, I suppose, and it's, it sounds a bit of a cop-out, but to say it is ever-changing. It can be very negative as well. Um, you know, I mean, a certain standards imposed by society and culture, um, certain aspects can be positive. You know, I mean, when Baden-Powell strips back that idea of chivalry, you know, don't harm the weak, I don't imagine there is anyone no matter what type of person they are who who would disagree with that uh, so to speak um so you know um it's it it's a funny one and um certainly the victorians were always grappling with it um you know and I, i suppose just like we are today but it is difficult for us to i mean i can sit here and talk about how important the empire was to the late Victorians, but I think it's difficult for for us to imagine just how militaristic late Victorian society was. Um, you know, I mean, we could only ever we could only ever get that feeling, I suppose, um, by traveling back in time. And here's where I think really a lot of pop culture adaptations of the Victorian era today in TV and film they you well they're usually adaptations of Dickens or Jane Austen and that they're usually taken from a period of domesticity Mm. we rarely get uh, when you look at it we rarely get adaptations of late Victorian novels all about the empire um and it's quite a funny one so you know we we look at the Victorian era today and we think okay you know um it was probably like um, Dickens portrays, you know, with, uh, you know, Nicholas Nickleby, um, you know, his novel, he finally, you know, goes through many adversities and then at the end he, atta- he attains true manhood because he marries and sets up home, etc. cetera. Um, and it's quite twee in a way. And, you know, that wasn't the reality for the late period. No, and I, I think there's there's got to be some, there's some picking and choosing as to what, we want to represent and I've got a funny feeling like a lot of them for me I'm not a massive watcher of those kind of films but there's always that there's almost that feeling of romance there's always that feeling yeah. of, of a feel good of a, of a going through a, a trial and tribulation and coming out the other side or learning something which is great but as you say it doesn't give a fair representation overall which is not what it's meant to do but it does mean that because it's pop culture it's the thing that most people are aware of so then it becomes almost the to everyone that's not well versed in it, like yourself, it becomes the well, what was real? It becomes well, you think back to Victorians, you think of that, but because because you don't know the whole lot. And I think you know, there's something massive nowadays because all I can see is because we've talked about the kind of the British stuff, because the world is now connected, like we're on Zoom today and we live just a few miles from each other, but we weren't able to do it in person. But but because the world is so connected, we're now able to see other people's cultures we're now able to see it's almost like a universal society in a way in terms of being able to spread expectations um which i think is a good thing in some ways because we're in some ways slightly more cultured slightly more knowledgeable about other countries than they would have been back then um because then as you said you know other countries were almost demonized because it was all about you know, sustaining what we have. Um, but also you end up with this universal feeling of of what a man is. And, and, and you mentioned, you know, you mentioned Sandow and, and when we look at bodybuilding. So bodybuilding almost goes back to things like your Greeks and your Romans and your Spartans and, and being really muscular and really, really, um, I suppose, just looking really powerful and really scary to, to, to opponents. Um but actually, even in the last 20, 30 years, we've seen changes from the front of magazines, from you know, perfume aftershave brands, all this stuff of the man, the perfect man, the idealistic man's body shape changing. Yeah, yeah. We've um, seen, you know, we've seen um ladies' body shapes changing, the kind of idealisms on them and what kind of things they should be doing. You know, you, you still you, I still see it now and I laugh when I see an advert for some of the Italian um aftershaves and i can't remember which ones it is and it'll all of a sudden just be a guy with a sword 
and it'll be, you know, some sort of centurion's hat and nothing else on. And you're like, it's just swinging around, might just have a pair of boxer shorts on. It's like, this is this is what's manly by my aftershave. Um, and- well, I remember, um, just to kind of interrupt you there, but um, to media, got a point I want to make to immediately follow on, but I was once showing some students um, d- discussing this kind of concept of manliness, but in a modern context. And I showed them a Diet Coke advert from the early 90s and a Diet Coke yeah, advert yeah, yeah. from... Yeah, yeah. Was but it the builders one from yeah. the 2010s? But the two men's body shapes were completely different. So in the early 90s, I, I think you're still emerging from that whole bodybuilding culture which predominated in America in the 1980s. So you know the Diet Coke guy in the 90s is you know very muscular, <laughs> and whereas the 2010s, you know, the guy was toned certainly, but. You know, um, probably with his clothes on, you would not have realised that he was, you know, muscular or anything. You know, it's um, yeah, he was in shape, but he wasn't um, a beast, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, yeah, so smaller, more athletic build, yeah. um, and still, you know, still at the extreme of what's possible, mm. especially when you when you're in the realms of. I mean, me and you know from being in the gym environment that yeah. to get to that would take you know take oh. a lot of work to get there. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's almost like we've gone from, okay, so we're going to have periods where we've got a long trend or there's depending on what's happening in the world. And right now in the space of 10 years, things can completely change. Um, but yeah, when you mentioned about the bodybuilding, then I was saying this to, I was saying this to Lauren the other day through all the body types since the eighties, the, the ideal man has never been a bodybuilder. No. It's almost going back to that. It's not not necessarily that domesticity, but it's a mixture. It depends where you look. It's a mixture of the man that looks after his family, yeah. the man that goes out to work, the man that might stay away from work because he's sacrificing something for his family, or, you know, the man that can achieve something. It's not necessarily the man's physical strength anymore. Unless you're looking at male fitness orientated magazines, in which case to men, it's marketed that men should be the strongest, the fittest, the fastest. So I find that really interesting, that kind of that kind of change. I don't know if you've experienced any of that. I mean, certainly from a historical point of view, uh, and just to pick up on your point, and that you know, this can change in the space of 10 years. It actually that Victorian ideal, that military servant of the empire, comes crashing down in 1918. Right. Because of the First World War. Um, And so, because what happens with the First World War is, of course, it is a war of empires. And the results are completely disastrous. But there's also mass bodily dismemberment. We have many um, disabled people coming back home and being very visible for the first time. Now, in the Victorian colonial wars of the previous century, if you got shot, if your if your arm got blown off in um, I don't know fighting um, in India or something, you were probably going to die um, unless you had a brilliant surgeon on the field with you, and you were buried in a foreign land. Um, so the amount of British war graves in India is just phenomenal. <laughs> um, but for the first time in 1940, uh, 1918, when the First World War ends, that's visible to everyone. And suddenly, the writers, who were quite influential, um, they actually begin to que- write some philo- philosophers, begin to question the whole ideal of that Victorian manly military man. And especially with a book published in 1918, a very small little book called Eminent Victorians. Now, You'd think from the title it was going to glorify the Victorian era, but it does no such thing. In fact, it's highly critical of people like General Gordon. Um, for um, it's highly critical of people like General Gordon for first of all promoting kind of this almost unhinged loyalty to empire and God, and taking that out to people who did not want it. Um, you know. Um, And it's the first kind of period in which these things are severely questioned. They had been questioned on occasion before, but certainly by 1918, the questioning of empire becomes mainstream. And 
other novelists are doing it as well and other thinkers and writers in fact by 1918 they want to reject everything that's victorian you know including the the supposed stuffy sexual sexuality um and you know the kind of stultified social manners and etiquette um so you know and hence you know we go into this kind of uh the, the roaring 20s almost but and here's where i think we're probably going to directly lead into some of what you were saying just now is that in the early 20th century yes you have the kind of demolition of that victorian ideal but people can't quite work out a replacement for it yet <laughs> that doesn't surprise me well one of the things is that you know we mentioned that idea of the breadwinner but in 1929 the great depression comes along and suddenly it even puts many middle-class people um, in Britain, America, and pretty much all of the world out of work. And, you know, lack of employment can severely affect a man's sense of self-worth, mm. um, as I'm sure many people will know. And then we have World War II. And it's quite interesting because men are forced again, men are called on again to defend the nation and by extension, the empire. But World War II propaganda at the time is framed very much in just in terms of nation and family. And the empire itself, even though Britain had an empire at that time, it rarely featured in the propaganda. Um, it did occasionally, of course, yeah. but um, and I think even in kind of popular memory um, out, outside of the kind of universities and schools today, we always imagine World War II as being a national struggle rather than, yeah. you know, a, an empire struggle, so to speak. Um, but I mean, and we we get to the 1950s, you know, war ends and many people come home. And for a brief period, I think, because certainly because of the influence of America, we get a relatively stable-ish kind of ideal man. Again, it returns a bit to the dom domestic kind of ideal you know a man comes home ideally if a wife wouldn't work but of course that excludes working class families whose wives always had to do some form of work mm -hmm. but I think and this is where you probably have more ideas on this for me but many uh, certainly many modern sociologists and historians say that since the 1960s there has been quote a crisis of masculinity um and we've never really especially with women entering the workplace and doing previous male jobs um you know even if even down to clerks and administrators jobs that white collar professional men would have done um back in the 1800s are, are now done by women i mean i don't know the exact statistics for our modern day but i would say that perhaps there's almost um an equal split maybe of um people in predominantly white collar jobs there being men and women but and I think we haven't yet worked out what masculinity means in this modern day um I don't know what, what you think about that but I think that I think that's really interesting and I think that's brought one thought to my mind is that actually what it sounds like and what I think now is that masculinity is given mm -hmm. traditionally it's been given yeah. You receive it, you decide whether you are or you aren't going to go along with it. And I think now there's that crisis, but it's not actually a crisis. What it is, is we've got to now form it ourselves. <laughs> so we look for pockets that tell us. So I see a men's health magazine and I see the guy on the cover and I go, that's now telling me what is masculine. But that's my bubble. That's my little world, you know. And somebody else may see something else and think, that's what I want to be. That's what I aspire to be. And it's almost that looking up to be. But essentially, you've got no one that's going to force you to be that. You've got to propel that yourself, um, which means if you've got, you know, you, and then that comes out into, you know, into community as well. So if you're, example, just going back to the gym. So if you're into bodybuilding and you see mm -hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger and you say, right, that is manly to me. So I'm going to aim towards that. Then what you've got then is you've got this almost coming back to that word crisis of somebody that's not into bodybuilding, somebody that thinks manly is the guy that goes to war. Yeah. And then you go, well, hang on, no, mine's manly. And someone else is going, yeah, but no, manly isn't that manly is this. 
So you've just got loads of different ideas of what it is. Um, well, and actually, I, it's got to come from inside. Well, I think that touches on kind of um, a theory posited by, um, well, she is now called Rowena Connell, but um, she, she is um, a kind of post-op post transgender yeah. woman now. Um, but Connell's theory of hegemonic masculinity, um, and I think you pretty much described there a little bit um, about what Connell came, the conclusion Connell came to in the 1980s. Um, and she said that there has always been, or there usually is in any given societies, a dominant ideal of masculinity. Mm. Now, I suppose in your case, as you've just said, society can be interpreted quite widely, mm. you know, the society of a gym and gym goers, et cetera, um, or maybe even national culture. And so the hegemon, that's the dominant, um, you know, a kind of synonym for dominant. The hegemon says that a, a man must, ideally live up to uh, this certain standard of masculinity. But it is possible, or perfectly possible, Con says, to be masculine without living up to the hegemon or the dominant ideal of masculinity. Oh. Um, and I think you, you pretty much touched on that, actually. It's, um, yeah, um, describing it um, in different terms. Uh, I mean, I think certainly it's more applicable to nowadays and maybe, I don't know, is that um, kind of thinking out loud here, but is that a consequence, as you say, of a much more globalised world? Um, you know, I'm living in the UK, but I can, if I want to, watch a superhero film, mm. an American superhero film. You know, you can, you know, we can watch... Indian films, we can watch films from across the world at the at the flick of a switch. I think, interestingly, one thing I'm going to take away from this conversation is that actually, I think if we go back to maybe even prehistoric men and early tribes, and we look at, you know, some of the maybe three things that you would look for from life itself or from a community, from other people, is safety, mm. love, and a sense of community. Yeah. So essentially, what you've just said there about that, um, was it Rowena? Uh, yeah. 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 So essentially what I'm getting from what Rowena's saying there is, you can get all that without embodying what you're being told you need to embody. Mm. So we can, you know, you can find, you can find the guy that isn't very big built, but actually, there's you know that can be strong, that can provide, that can create community, and that can and that can love you and protect you. Yeah. So maybe it's going. Maybe you know one thing I want to do with with this kind of episode is kind of come up with something that might be a good takeaway for someone that's that's yeah. listened to this. And and one thing I would import, and it'd be interesting to see what you think as well, Stephen, is that if we strip it all back, and if there is a crisis for you on you know, what masculinity is for you and whether you feel like you're living up to that is that one, it's it's actually really important to know that what your expectations are and whether they're coming from somebody else or whether they're actually internal. But also, you know, can you, for the people closest to you and for yourself, can you love? Can you, you know, have that sense of community? Can you protect and, you know, and can you provide, whether it be for yourself or whether it be, you know, in, in, in whatever way. And I think if you can do that, then, you know, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think, you know, can we can we accept that anything else may just be extra? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I said to you when, when I kind of saw you in the gym, when we were talking in a kind of casual way about this, um, I mean, you know, growing up gay, um, especially in the late 90s, early 2000s, when societies it's not homophobic but certainly it doesn't necessarily consider gay men men uh so to speak i i think a kind of knowledge um and this is what i kind of say to listeners you know uh, a knowledge that masculinity has always changed um that has you know you know in 30 years time what is the ideal man um 
now will not be the ideal man in 30 years time um just and it was the same for the victorians and i think a kind of historical awareness certainly um of just the changing standards that have been imposed on men mm -hmm. um it's probably quite good for your mental health in a way in, in a roundabout way um you know you know just reading kind of posts about these things or you know books if need be you know plenty of books on masculinity through history and that um i mean what i mean i had in my head kind of to say you know a, a kind of punchline to say remember that essentially masculinity can almost be considered a fiction but maybe fiction isn't the right word it's certainly um fictional ish uh because it is something that usually popular culture and society tell us to but it's not fiction in that sometimes we the anxiety effects of not living up to that can be very real um, and so in that sense it's not a fiction but yeah I, I would say yeah just a kind of word of advice is to you know remember that standards have always changed and you that you know there were plenty of Victorians who never lived up to the standards imposed on them and you know wonderfully so as well um you know and you know I think just be the best you can for yourself yeah. um yeah and um you know okay the victorian ideals um certainly there's a couple of things i would never disagree with you know just do good to others aspect um the kind of emphasis on self-improvement whatever mm -hmm. form that might take whether it is, is learning more etc um you know but do what is best for you and don't feel um don't feel forced into it by anything that a movie or any other aspect of popular culture would tell you to do basically i love that i love that i think that's a really nice place to to, to kind of start to wrap up on the idea of just being the best version of you yeah um and actually that goes back to that goes back to scouting and some of the yeah. stuff you know our, our groups every week you know do your best which is actually where Dib 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 comes from, which I only realised a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> it's DYB, which is do your best. So, oh, right, okay. I thought it was an I. Um, but anyway, um, but no, I mean, thank you for that. I mean, obviously you're a, a wealth of knowledge. Um, if anyone <laughs> wants to find out anything about, um, anything more about yourself or follow you on any of the social medias or even any of your books and stuff, I mean, I'll put some links in the description which you're going to send me. But is there anywhere that they can... Um, to yeah, I mean, there is books, but I do have a website that's been going for um, almost 10 years, which updates with usually a, uh, weekly with like 3000 word articles on various things. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll send you the uh, website for that. Um, thank you, though. Uh, yeah. No, you're welcome. And for everyone listening, thank you. Now, this is the first episode of the Manstrom podcast. I'm always looking for guests. I've got a few lined up, but it's always important that you know, we look at some of the difficult topics, we'll look at some of the bigger topics, some, you know, some conversations are going to, you know, be a little bit harder to listen to, you know, if you're not into history, if and you're still here right now, thank you, because the whole point of this is to try and open ourselves up to, you know, being the best we can and open ourselves up to new things and new, you know, new media. And thank you for, for supporting that. Thank you for joining us today, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And from me, from Stephen. See you later on.